this is Mark McCarter. Thanks for connecting with us on Pod Topics for the Never a Bad Game podcast. In this episode, I'm going to wander down memory lane and talk about the Super Bowl, that great American holiday. I remember how close Kevin Dyson was to the end zone. I remember the solemn, touching projection of names on a screen in New Orleans. I remember the media days and the circus they became. I remember the cool swag and that sad feeling of saying goodbye to it at a garage sale. I remember Paul McCartney at a press conference and a blizzard and naked people everywhere you turn. I also remember the Super Bowl 35 in Tampa where I heard the greatest quote of my sports writing career. This year will bring a Super Bowl like we've never seen. But you know, you start looking at the history, every Super Bowl stands on its own. I was fortunate enough to cover five Super Bowls in a stretch in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, if nothing else, it wasn't a bad deal to get a week in Florida in January on company money. National Football League presents... I think we just rehearsed the right amount. Just enough to know exactly what we're doing, but not enough to get it boring. So it still was exciting. Once again, you're listening to the Never a Bad Game podcast on Pod Topics. I'm your host, Mark McCarter. For our newer listeners, I'm a longtime sports writer in the Southeast and the author of three books. One of them, a 50-year history of the Southern League called Never a Bad Game, lends its name to this podcast. You can find information on ordering that book, how convenient, at neverabadgame.com. As we've shared in other episodes, I've been lucky enough to write for three daily newspapers during my career and cover some great sporting events. The Olympics, the Final Four, the World Series, the Masters, and National Football Championships. Through the years, I've collected more than a few stories from my native home of Chattanooga and my adopted home of Huntsville, some of which I'll be telling in these future podcasts. Joining me, as always, is my friend, former colleague, producer, and podcast guru, Greg Thompson. Mark, it's great to be back with you here on the Never a Bad Game podcast. We're talking about Super Bowls. The Super Bowl has become such a tradition in America, almost a national holiday. In the ancient days, you know, every city had a daily newspaper. There was always a lot of competition between the papers about who covered the most, who did the really cool stuff. A little bit of showing off for each other as much as for the readers. When you got to a Super Bowl, all the nuts and bolts, there, they're covered by the Associated Press and all the other services that you subscribe to. If in a mid-major paper, the Huntsville Times, I think we were the Gonzaga of newsprint there for a while. You needed to find a local angle. You needed to do something unique. Also doing the nuts and bolts coverage, but you had to find that exceptional story. So for Super Bowl 35 in Tampa, the idea was that I would attend at some Super Bowl-related event every day, and I had a budget of $35 to spend on tickets, mission, whatever. So one night I went to a basketball game where some NFL players like Terrell Owens were playing a charity game. I went to an art gallery that had a lot of Super Bowl photos. There was a deal, this wacky deal at the Tampa airport where they had a bunch of NFL players and they had ropes tied to the nose of two Southwest Airlines planes. And the deal was the NFL players had to drag them 50 yards down a runway. Great promotion for Southwest. The kicker, though, that week was the Buff Bowl. Now, apparently the Tampa area, and I didn't know this at the time, has more nudist resorts per square mile than anywhere on the planet. So the Lake Como Nudist Resort, I'd read earlier in the week, was going to hold a flag football game on the Saturday before the Super Bowl. Oh, gosh. Now, when I tell you that story, and as I tell this in speeches, there are three questions that immediately come to mind. The answers are yes, yes. And hell no. <laughs> okay, so yes. so what are the yeses here? <laughs> yeses, they really were naked. 
Yes, it was co-ed flag football. And no, this was not one of those deals where when in Rome, do as the Romans do. My clothes stayed on the whole time. I tracked down the PR person for this resort, and she invited me to come out and watch. The game was the bare bonds versus the totally tans. They had cheerleaders, and they had pom-poms, and they had the works. And the teams were out there, and they're just wearing sneakers and caps and those little flag football belts that people wore in gym class. So there was the greatest quote ever. The quarterback <laughs> from one of those teams said, we don't have a lot of rules. The only rule we have is you grab something. If it doesn't come off in three seconds, let go. <laughs> My goodness. If you're going to play that sport that way, that is definitely rule number one. That is an all-timer in my book. Let's look at a few other things, and let's get back to that first Super Bowl. I'm not old enough to have covered that first Super Bowl, but old enough to remember it. And I think Super Bowl One has more lore than maybe all the rest of them put together. First of all, it wasn't even called officially the Super Bowl. It was the NFL versus the AFL championship game. You didn't have two conferences. You had two leagues. It was the Super Bowl because Lamar Hunt, who was the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, had a son who had a Super Bowl, a toy that just had a lot of spring to it. And so that just sort of resonated with Hunt. Super Bowl to Super Bowl, and eventually the name caught on. Back in those days, there was fierce competition between the two leagues in terms of the television. So how was it covered? This was the Super Bowl where both CBS and NBC covered it because they covered the respective leagues. Second half kickoff, one of the networks hadn't even come back from the commercial, so they had to re-kick the second half kickoff. The game was in Los Angeles, the Coliseum, wasn't even a sellout. The hero of the game, though Bart Starr was the MVP, was a guy named Max McGee, who was a Packers backup wide receiver. Well, Max was kind of a party guy. He was about to retire anyway. He and Paul Hornig went out the Saturday night before the Super Bowl, apparently made some new friends and might have gotten on the outside of some adult beverage, and he didn't figure out playing, so he was there hungover as could be. But Boyd Dowler, the first team wide receiver, gets hurt early in the game. So McGee, with a massive hangover, has to find his helmet, has to squeeze his aching head inside his helmet and go out and play. And Max McGee, with that massive hangover, got his place in history as the first guy to score a touchdown in Super Bowl history. And if I'm recalling correctly from the films, I believe in one of those, it almost seems like he was stumbling into the end zone, so that was somewhat appropriate. We talked a lot in our last podcast about that first Super Bowl and the second Super Bowl as well when Green Bay won it, but it was the third Super Bowl that really turned football on his ear, and we're talking about Joe Namath. I get up to the podium and a guy in the back of the room yells out, hey, Namath, we're going to kick your, you know what? Now, wait a minute. I've been hearing that all week long. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game. I guarantee you. That's all there was to it. One guy in the media picked up on that statement. Then everybody said, oh, guaranteeing a win, guaranteeing a win. Joe Namath was the counterculture quarterback. You think there's a divided nation now. Think back to 1968, 1969, and you had two different camps then. You had the Joe Namath camp. You had the quarterback with the long hair and cocky and wore his white shoes and had that famous fur coat. The other side, you had the Johnny Unitas camp with that crew cut who's conservative, those black high-top shoes. A little more Super Bowl trivia, and I mentioned this in our last podcast. 
Joe Namath was assigned the same suite, room 534 at the Galt Ocean Mile Hotel in Fort Lauderdale, where Vince Lombardi had stayed the previous year. Namath was lounging around poolside, talking to reporters, and was a great interview, but it was at a banquet that he famously guaranteed the Jets would win, and they did, 16-7. to You think back, Namath was the MVP, but he was kind of average in that game. The Colts made some horrible defensive mistakes. They couldn't click on offense at all, and the Jets' defense was just really pretty doggone good. I can think back to a year when I covered the Orange Bowl in Miami. By then, the Orange Bowl had moved out to the suburbs and that multi-purpose stadium that the Dolphins and Marlins used. But I went down to the old Orange Bowl. The game that year actually was between Alabama and Michigan. It was a New Year's Day Bowl, and we were all fretting. It was the January 1st, 2000. We all were fretting that Y2K was going to end the world as we knew it. Alabama ended up losing that game when their kicker missed an extra point. Sean Alexander scored three touchdowns for Alabama. Some relatively unknown kid named Brady passed for four touchdowns for Michigan that day. It wouldn't be the last time anybody saw Tom Brady win a big game in January. But I digress there. The week before the game, I went to the old Orange Bowl, and I snuck out on the field, and I made a point to walk through that end zone tunnel where Namath left the field with that famous video, sticking a finger up in the air. And I guess I probably stuck my finger up in the air that day, too, when I walked off. Oh, well, I wasn't on video. Mark, when you think about that, that is one of the most iconic moments in sports. Namath, the feeling overtook him at that moment. He knew they were the tops in the world, that they had done something that nobody thought they could do. And that was just one of those things, again, we talked about there was this big competition between the AFL and the NFL. NFL. Right at that moment, there were discussions happening with the merger, as you'll recall. The merger became a reality really after that game. And then you had the AFL essentially become the AFC. The NFL essentially becomes the NFC. There were some teams that swapped back and forth. But then you had the Super Bowl from Super Bowl three on through now 54 editions. What is amazing, Mark, is that we are now at a 27-27 tie between what was the AFL, AFC, and the NFL, now the NFC. And when you look at all those numbers through the years, it's a pretty amazing even split that all got started by that earth-shaking upset by the Jets in Super Bowl III. Well, they said that Namath, who put himself on the spot by talking all week, saying how the Jets would win it, he'd have to have a perfect game, and he's had just about that. The New York Jets leading 16-7, and right in their grasp is one of the greatest upsets in sports history. Not just a win, but a convincing victory. If you don't think that isn't a dejected Baltimore bench right now, what are their feelings? They were anywhere from 18 to 22-point favorites. They were ridiculing the Jets and the AFL. The Colts call one of the greatest teams in the history of pro football. Remember the AFL beat the NFL 13 times in exhibition games to 10. Now they said those are only preseason games. But with a common draft, the AFL has been coming on. And they've showed it here today. Joe Namath has been named the most valuable player of this game. And rightly so. The game is over. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. Mark, you referenced it a little bit earlier in the podcast that going to the Super Bowl for a sports writer or a sports department or a paper back in the day, just getting credentialed was a huge thing. It required a conversation, particularly for mid-major papers. Talk to me about how you got to your first Super Bowl. 
Yeah, I got my sports editor drunk. <laughs> that's always that's, a good route. <laughs> that's how you get a lot of really good assignments. I'd been covering the Titans in, in the fall of 98. It was my first year in Huntsville. And I was out one night for dinner and having a few beers with my sports editor. We'd been doing a lot of cool stuff, and our paper was very, very ambitious. And so I just had to say if we'd ever covered a Super Bowl. He said, no, we hadn't. So I pitched doing it. I said, look, it's in Miami. We can probably book airfare cheap enough. You get media rated a hotel. We can maybe spend 1000 1500 bucks, whatever. I'll eat cheap. And if we don't feel like we get our money's worth, no big deal. We've tried and don't ever have to cover one again. As it turned out, that's the year the Falcons went. The Dirty Birds Falcons team. Oh, yeah. So there was a great regional story. Then you start looking at the Falcons, and we've had a local guy from Huntsville named Adam Schreiber, who was the Falcons' long snapper. So I convinced Adam to do a daily journal with me. I'd sit down with him every day and just let him talk into my recorder and we do 300 to 400 words in his own words diary. So we had a great local touch to it. We were lucky enough to do that in some other Super Bowls with Joey Kent with the Titans and Howard Cross, who grew up outside Huntsville when he was with the Giants and playing in the Super Bowl in Tampa. So we were an afternoon paper in those days, so wasn't writing on deadlines. So I had a lot of time to think. And even after the game, I wasn't writing much at the stadium. So by the time I got my last interview done, got back to the room, wrote, it was already dawn, and I was straight to the airport without getting any sleep that night. I covered another Super Bowl in New Orleans. That was Tom Brady's first win. And what I'm always going to remember about that, that was the first Super Bowl after 9-11. And at halftime, they had screens dangling from the ceiling in the Superdome and projected all the names of all the victims from New York and Washington on those screens. I remember just going into the game, it was the most intense security I'd ever seen at a sporting event. It's the sort of thing now that we kind of take second nature. And then there was the Super Bowl in Tampa that I mentioned that was more memorable for the Buff Bowl than the Super Bowl. But Super Bowl 34, that was the one that was a little bit magical and a little bit miserable. Mark, and that was the one that featured the Titans and the Rams. And it was the first year that the Titans were in their new stadium. And it was the year, the moment of the Music City Miracle. That's when they beat the Bills on that last second play with Kevin Dyson. That was a great Titans team. It had Steve McNair at quarterback, Eddie George at running back, Frank Wycheck at tight end, Kevin Dyson receiver, Javon Curse was just a beast on defense. But don't forget, after that Music City Miracle, they still had to go to Indianapolis the next weekend, and then they had to go to Jacksonville because the Jags had won the division and they advanced to the finals. You think about it, Jacksonville reached the division finals by beating Miami and Dan Marino 62-7. to now Wrap your head around that. A Jacksonville team scoring 62 points. That's a hell freezes over kind of notion. Yes, either that or when Atlanta freezes over, right? Exactly. Well, Mark, one of the guys that was with you in Atlanta covering that Super Bowl was Mark Weedmer. As you know, he's a columnist with the Chattanooga Times Free Press. He's an old colleague of both of ours, and I know he's one of your best friends in the business. And as you know, we caught up with Weeds recently for this conversation. Mark Weedmer, the award-winning columnist from the Chattanooga Times Free Press, joins us on the Never a Bad Game podcast, bringing together the two Marks, and the subject is the Atlanta Super Bowl, Super Bowl 34, one of the most memorable in history. Yes, and for at least a few good reasons, and if you were in the media, a few bad ones. It's surely one of the coldest Super Bowls ever. Good thing they had a dome. Yeah, and I was spoiled because I'd covered it the year before for the first time, and it was Miami all week. And then the next year, here we are in Atlanta, and 
the ice storm hit that week. My gosh, did it ever. One of the cool things about that Super Bowl and that run was that it really began with Kevin Dyson and it ended with Kevin Dyson. And you guys were both there for one of the most memorable moments in NFL history. And that was the Music City Miracle. You know, before we get in and dive into Super Bowl 34, let's talk about that Titans run. Well, for one thing, I don't know if Mark remembers this, it was about as cold in Nashville that day as it was in Atlanta. I think the game time temperature was like 28. It was brutal. You think they're beat. They're down 16, 15. There's, I don't know what, 14 seconds left or something. And, I mean, it's a play we'll all remember forever. Yeah, it was just a ridiculously unbelievable season. It was the first year in the new stadium in Nashville after they had slogged along through the first year there at Vanderbilt. It was the first year as the Titans. They had played as the Tennessee Oilers. You, know, you had a great team because you had McNair, you had Wycheck, you had Dyson. You know, I think one of our favorite guys, Weeds, you and I would both always hit to after the game, was Javon Curse. I mean, that was a guy who'd fill up your notepad with great quotes. You know, he'd turn that defense around. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he was an absolute beast there that first couple of years. You couldn't stop him. He was what Clowney is now when he's healthy. He was so quick off the line, and he was. He was a lot of fun to talk to. That was a fun team. Yeah, it was kind of odd. I don't know what your perspective was covering it because it was not like a day-to-day beat for either one of us. It was a neat little respite almost from college football. You and I would have been somewhere on the Saturday before and then catch three or four hours sleep and go to Nashville to cover the home games. But the thing about covering a pro football game that I think you and I both appreciated, the thing kicked off at noon. By 3 o'clock, it's over. You're down in the locker rooms. You get your interviews done by 4 and then, depending on how fast you can type, you're out of there. It was easy to cover. We weren't as close to the players and the team as we would have been with the Nashville guys, but we also had kind of a link to them because we were in all the home games. Oh, absolutely. And the term professional football, when you're on our end of it, is so true because, like you said, everything pretty much moves like clockwork. You don't have a coach waiting 30 minutes to talk to you after a game. You don't have a lot of players ducking out of responsibilities to the media. In a lot of ways, it's much easier than covering college football. It was just a fun break after a long Saturday because we'd get the press box, and you and I have been lifelong friends in this business. But Our our seats were signed next to each other by happenstance, so it was a great chance you and I could get caught up. And then it was a reunion with a lot of our friends in the Nashville media. It was almost like a vacation from our jobs. And plus, it was new. We hadn't gone through this before. We hadn't gotten jaded by the guys who didn't want to talk to the media. They were on such a Cinderella run just getting to the playoffs. And then to have that first game in the way it did, you had everybody wanting to read about it and talk about it. It was, in every respect for everybody involved, something of a fairy tale. Let's go back to that moment. At the time, I guess it was 16 to 13. There were 16 seconds left on the clock. It was done, right? And then they did the home run throwback. It's now been 21 years. Where were you guys when this happened? And in all of the days that you guys have been covering sports and between the two of you, it's been a long, long time. And not to make you guys sound like fossils. We are fossils. (laughs) We are, exactly, yes. 
that was one of those things that was really unique. And McCarter, you shared a photo with me that you were right there at the moment. I think Dyson's looking back and realizing he's got it. Walk us through where you guys were and the whole aftermath of that. I was in the press box. I, I watched it in the, the press field? I had not gone down to the field yet. I think because I'd kind of given up. According to Jeff Fisher, the Titans owner was in the elevator and he'd given up as well. Well, I mean, it was understandable. We're not supposed to be fans, but it was heartbreaking to look at the clock and know they have no hope because, for one thing, they were not a big play team. You know, they weren't somebody you expected, well, they can throw a 65-yard bomb here and get down and kick a field goal. You just thought, well, this is it, and then they come up with that play. I had forgotten that you didn't come down to the, on the elevator. You know, what they'll do, Greg, is mm-hmm. late in the game in the NFL game, you can – take the elevator down a certain amount of the fourth quarter, and then two minutes to go, they'll let the media onto the field on the sidelines. And maybe it was too cold for Weeds to come down. <laughs> you know, I think you and I may have had the same fleeting thing, Weeds. How many ninth innings did we sit together in Atlanta Stadium? And <laughs> it's, it's just like, oh, God, the team that we cover gets so close. Here we go again, covering the Titans now is like covering the Braves. They're going to get, they're going to tease us. They're going to get us to this point and have a great year. And then, boom, they lose a game they have no business losing. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a lot of those, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, years later, you hear Jeff Fisher talking about the fact that, I guess, Mason had gone out with a concussion. Anthony Dorsett Jr. had cramped. And Dyson was like the third option, and he had not paid attention to this play the entire season. Yeah. Oh, that was part of Dyson's problem in general. (laughs) (laughs) Do the Titans have a miracle left in them in what has been a magical season to this point? If they do, they need it now. Christie kicks it high and short. Going to be fielded by Lorenzo Neal at the 25. Pitches it back to Wycheck. He throws it across the field to Dyson. He's got something. 30, He's 40, got something. 50, He's got it. 40, He's got it. 20, 10, He's got it. End zone. Touchdown, Titans. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Tennessee has pulled a miracle. So they get through that game. Weeds. They went to Indy right after that. They beat Peyton the next week because that was a wild card game. Buffalo was a wild card game. And they go to Indy and beat Peyton, I want to say 19 to 16. It was three points. Eddie George breaks off a huge run near the start of the second half, like a 68 yard run. They come back and win that one. And then they go to Jacksonville for the AFC Championship. And Jacksonville had mouthed off all week. Yeah, Tennessee beaten them twice during the regular season, but. This wasn't the regular season, and Jacksonville was up 14-10 at halftime, and Tennessee ran off 23 straight points in the second half. Just mashed them. I don't know that they danced on the Jaguars logo after the game, but that was a pretty happy bunch of Titans after all the Jaguars had said that week. So this happens, and then you have a Super Bowl in Atlanta. Was this the first Super Bowl that they'd had in Atlanta, I believe? No. Oh, no, they, they in 94, I believe. Oh, that's know, right. That Dallas, yeah. Dallas Buffalo in 94. Okay. And that was the first one I'd ever gone to. That's so, when I was actually That was not Atlanta. quite so cold. <laughs> no. No, it was just boring. It was boring. Yes, it was. 
Well, and although the, one I like that Buffalo led that game at halftime, I think mm. Buffalo led at halftime and then Dallas just beat the tar out of them. Yeah. The week that you and I were there together and it was freezing. And I love one of your memories because I think people, they hear about our, you go to a press conference, but when you get to a Super Bowl, sometimes things that have to be so ad libbed, we would go to the team hotels and they would have these giant tents, tents. like you have at a wedding set up for us to do interview. And I remember your great memory of going into, I guess, that Tuesday morning team press conference. I go in and it's like seven in the morning and they have these giant tents and they've got heaters in the tents, but they don't have heaters everywhere in the tents. So we're waiting for the team to come out and I get a Danish or two maybe and an orange juice and a coffee and I go sit down at a table and leave my food there and maybe take the coffee with me to do the interviews. I come back maybe probably 90 minutes later and there's ice in my orange juice. That's how cold it was. I'll never forget that. My table where I'd said it was kind of near the outside of the tent. People had no idea how ridiculous that week was. The roads weren't terrible. I didn't stay at the media hotel. I didn't stay downtown. I stayed out in Marietta in a place where I Always stayed for Braves games, and it was cheaper, and I figured I've got my car. I know how to get around Atlanta. Uh, there was a good wings place next to it. I want to be able to, to eat in peace. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember this, but on the Saturday before the Super Bowl, North Carolina played at Georgia Tech, and kind of a second wave of ice had hit the night before. I remember being one of maybe like 2,000 people in the Thriller Dome that Saturday to watch that game. And then it took me like well over an hour to get out to my parents in Roswell. I mean, the roads were pretty bad that Saturday and Sunday. I remember being nervous walking on sidewalks to like take the bus over to the game. Everything was so slick. I mean, there was rock salt everywhere in Atlanta that weekend. I remember because my hotel was only about quarter mile from the Weather Channel headquarters. And I remember calling over there to see if I could come to the studio and interview weather people, thinking, okay, I need an off-the-wall column. Everybody needs one. Because this had really turned out to be, as I even called it the column, the Weather Channel Super Bowl. And oh, that's awesome. And I said, you know, let me come over. Let me poll the staff. Who can give me a Super Bowl prediction? And I think they figured out some crackpot and they didn't want to have to mess with me. But finally, the operator, we got so-and-so and he's at his desk. Let me let you talk to him. And I got one of the anchors. And it was not one of the superstar anchors, but one of the folks who was on fairly regularly. So I got a few quotes from him just to the weatherman's Super Bowl prediction. That's how desperate you get for a Super Bowl column those weeks. Well, particularly when you can't get out and interview anybody. Right. I think during this period of time, wasn't it, they credential a lot of people. You've seen Biff Henderson back in the Letterman days go there. and It's 3,500 of your closest friends, Greg. <laughs> oh, gosh. And so there are some people who get credentials that probably shouldn't. What about okay. Polly Shore? When he had a Super yeah, Bowl I don't one remember year. media day in Atlanta with the two teams. I don't remember a thing about it. I don't remember it being quite the circus that it was every other time I went to one. That whole thing, if you're serious about what you're doing and you want to get you know, a decent story, I would think that media day at the Super Bowl is probably not the place to get it. Oh, Mark will back this up. An intimate interview on Super Bowl week is you and maybe 50 guys. Yeah. 
I mean, there's no such thing as anything close to a one-on-one. Well, I will agree with that with an asterisk. When you're set up, especially on the media day, that is a zoo. But one of the things that we always had from the Huntsville paper was find that local angle. And we were lucky the first three or four Super Bowls that I covered from Huntsville, we had a local guy playing. There was never anybody who was a spotlight player, which was great. The backup long snapper. That's exactly what I had my first year. A guy named Adam Schreiber was the long snapper for the Falcons. Played in Texas, grew up in Huntsville. I reached out to him the week before the Super Bowl when we saw the Falcons were going. And he said, yeah, nobody's asked me for an interview in 13 years of the league. I'll do it. It was awesome. So I, you catch up with these guys on the media availability. Like you'll go into that big tent and there will be, like we said, there are 50 guys hanging around Steve McNair or Eddie George. Well, I want to talk to Joey Kent, the wide receiver from Huntsville, who was Peyton's favorite receiver at Tennessee because Joey's my homeboy. And I'm getting joy one-on-one. I've just got the tape recorder in front of him. He's dictating something, and it becomes the daily Joy Kent Super Bowl diary. That's where I was lucky. My local guys were so obscure that I could get a little one-on-one time with them. For the most part, you look around, it's this very awkward moment for a while because you see the superstars getting interviewed, and you got the other 20, 25 guys on the team standing there twiddling their thumbs like, you know, we could be back in the room watching Bonanza reruns instead of being here. (laughs) And it was my problem that Ray Oldham had retired before I started covering Super Bowls. (laughs) Ray Bob. (laughs) Obviously, the game was outstanding and ended with Dyson being one yard short with Mike Jones making that tackle. What else stood out to you guys from that week, that game, that day? I think as much as anything, Mark and I remember so many awful Super Bowls that were so one-sided, and this was anything but that. Now, what I'd forgotten until I was going back and looking at some things earlier today, the Titans trailed 16 nothing in that game yeah. and then run off 16 straight points. Warner hits Isaac Bruce for about a 70-yard bomb to give the Rams the lead again. Mm-hmm. But then Tennessee comes right down the field. You know, McNair was such a winner on the field, such a tough guy such a leader. He never gave up, so the team never gave up. Just a remarkable finish. It has never happened in Super Bowl history for a team to score on the last play of regulation. First and goal to go. Rams 23, Titans 16. McNair drops, throws right side for Dyson. He dives for the end zone. Didn't make it. He came up one yard short. The Rams win by a yard. At the end, I remember just sitting there going, oh my God, it's over. They were so close, you're thinking, oh, they just need one more play, and that play wasn't there. It's a horrible cliche, but there was this team of destiny feel about the Titans when they got into postseason. So it really was almost a shock to the system when you come up a yard short. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You're thinking, oh, something's going to happen here and they're going to get a chance to win it. And, of course, they didn't. You know, I often think back now, I drove home that night late. You get up the next day and there's the Ray Lewis murder situation in Buckhead. That Super Bowl will be remembered for a lot of bad things, but what a great game. There had been that trend of some kind of boring, lopsided Super Bowls. That one almost turned it around. I think there's been a lot more dramatic Super Bowls than that stretch back when the Cowboys were dominating or 
the 49ers were dominating. The next year was kind of a blah game down in Tampa. Patriots and Rams were pretty good the year after that. So I think yeah, Super Bowl's got to be a little more entertaining, and this game may have helped turn that tide. I don't think there's any question that that did turn the tide, and you've seen far more really good Super Bowls than bad ones since then. And you know what's interesting in thinking about that? How many of those great determining plays that have won Super Bowls, so few of them have been on offense. You think about Malcolm Butler's interception. You think about Mike Jones' tackle of Dyson. You think about, even though it wasn't a pivotal play, when Matt Ryan got sacked and that turned things around when the Falcons fell apart. It's amazing. You think about offensive heroics in the Super Bowl, but it's been great defensive plays much of the time that have been the key in these close games. Defense wins championships. Guys, I was thinking about when you said that one of the longest returns there, who was that big lineman for Pittsburgh? James Harris. The 100-yard uh, fumble return for a touchdown. And Kurt Warner was part of that game. Weeds, I got one more for you. This is the off-the-wall question. Your favorite Super Bowl swag, and where is it? You know, and this is really nothing. At some point, I got a really nice paperweight a clear plastic thing with like a ticket in it. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know where it is now, but I used it for a long time. They used to load us up with stuff between computer bags and writing pens and lapel pens both. Greg, they would even have little tiny radios with just a transistor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be in your seat cushion. Yeah, you had a seat cushion too. And it had a pocket in it. It would have the radio in it and you could listen to the TV broadcast. You could listen to either team's radio network. Now, the seat cushions, that's a good point. I've still got those. Let me just yeah. say the Breeders' Cup had far better swag. <laughs> Weeds, it's been great to go down memory lane with you here a little bit. Oh, this is terrific. I'd forgotten so much about that Super Bowl till you called me about this. And partly just because of the weather probably made it difficult in ways that normally it isn't. A lot of fond memories of it, too. And I'm sorry that Atlanta kind of suffered when it came to getting future Super Bowls because of that. Because you can't control the weather. The city did as great a job as they could. But it was a difficult time. And, of course, you only had the one week between the title games and the Super Bowl. Once again, we'd like to thank Mark Weedmer from the Chattanooga Times Free Press for joining us on this edition of the Never a Bad Game podcast. I'm Greg Thompson, and I'm riding shotgun alongside your Never a Bad Game podcast host, Mark McCarter. And Mark, I know earlier you talked about covering five Super Bowls in that short stretch before newspaper budgets got tight. And looking back, can you talk to us about the last one you covered? Last one I went to was the Super Bowl in Jacksonville in 2005. That was Patriots against the Eagles. I remember it more than anything about the logistics than I do the game. I drove down to Florida midweek, stayed in some cheap hotel in the suburbs instead of the media hotel downtown. After the game, drove straight to Daytona for the media day for the Daytona 500. Left my car at an airport parking lot, flew home for a week, then flew back to Daytona to cover the race, went to Braves camp then drove home. I think that year I got a letter from the Florida Board of Elections to see about my eligibility. It wasn't much of a Super Bowl, and I made a point to be there that week in time for the press conference, I think Wednesday or Thursday with Paul McCartney. I remember my seat was in the very back row of the stadium. For press section, they just do this temporary deal where they'll set up wooden tabletops on the top of every other row. Then every other seat on a row is workspace for the media. So I'm crammed into this tight area, just a typical stadium seat, a wooden table in front of me, and miles from the stadium, you feel like, or from the field, 
very top row, starting to get chilly. So I stayed at my seat loyally covering the game until halftime, watched McCartney do the halftime show. Then I grabbed my laptop, went downstairs to the media tent, and the last half of the Super Bowl that I ever attended, I was just like you. I watched the game on TV. And that's the naked truth. My thanks to Greg Thompson. Thanks to the sports editors who get generous after three or four beers. Thanks to the great Mark Weedmer. And thanks to whoever that guy at the Gulf Ocean Mile Hotel was who had the sense of humor to put Vince Lombardi and Joe Namath in the same suite back-to-back years. And thanks mostly to you for listening. This has been Mark McCarter, and this has been the Never a Bad Game podcast. Hope you'll join us for future episodes and share the word with your friends. Meanwhile, you can check out my blog post, neveradbadgame.com, and find information on purchasing my books. Until next time, hope all your games are great ones.